Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for that account of people being healed and even raised from the dead. Please help us as we ponder its meaning and seek to apply it to our lives. Amen. It's very easy to think of Mark's gospel as just a straightforward telling of what happened when Jesus was on earth. But Mark has some ways of communicating the story of Jesus that take us more deeply into what was going on beneath the surface. And one way in which Mark does this is to wrap one story from Jesus' life inside another. And the two spark off each other and illustrate each other. He does it with the parable of the fig tree and the driving out of the money changers from the temple. And he does it with these two stories of Jairus and a woman who was healed. He's doing more than just tell us what happened. He's helping us to see the meaning of it. And in doing that, Mark is seeking to help us to deepen our faith in Jesus. That reading from Mark is on page um, 1007 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow it. So the story of an unknown and sick woman is wrapped into the story of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and his daughter. There are some parallels that Mark draws out between the two. The woman had been ill for 12 years. Jairus's daughter was 12 years old. The woman was fearful. When her action was discovered, she came trembling to Jesus. Jairus is exhorted not to be afraid, just to believe. Jesus tells the woman her faith has saved her. Jairus asked Jesus to save his daughter. Both of these stories have to do with fear and faith, and they both raise bigger questions of salvation. So let's have a look at each of them in turn. Fear, faith, and salvation. And let's begin with fear, since that was where it started for these two characters. For Jairus, there's the obvious fear for his daughter's health, even for her life. And then there's the less obvious matter of somebody in his position being seen to come to Jesus. By now, Jesus had a reputation. His name was associated with trouble, trouble with the religious authorities, and people in the temple must have been saying, if he doesn't watch it, he's going to start attracting the attention of the Roman authorities. Some of their fear had, of Jesus had to do with keeping the state off their backs. If Herod Antipas heard that Jesus was speaking of his kingdom, then you could be certain there would follow a crackdown. And Jairus was part of that religious establishment. At best, you'd expect him to want to keep a safe distance from Jesus. But now his daughter is ill, and he's heard of the healings that have been going on. Is it possible that Jesus could help his daughter? Word reaches him that Jesus is back in town, 
Jairus throws caution to the wind and rushes off in broad daylight to find him. What father would do anything else? And Jesus goes with him to help. And then the action moves to the woman. The suspense is almost unbearable, even for us. And we know the end of the story. What would it have been like for poor Jairus? He must have been hopping from one foot to the other. Well, sorry and all that, Jairus, but I'm afraid we're going to leave you there for a bit longer, and we're going to go back to the woman. Fear is real for her too. Mark tells us that her illness involved blood loss. Any loss of bodily fluids made the patient unclean, which meant that she was excluded from public worship and she was banned from touching any religious leader. I wonder if that may be why she thought she would just touch the hem of his robe rather than touching Jesus himself. So when Jesus felt power go out of him in her healing and asked who had touched him, she must have wished that the ground would swallow her. Her furtive effort was laid bare. It would be embarrassing and it would be risky to own up. The community might hold it against her for the rest of her life. What a relief it must have been when Jesus was merciful to her and not stern. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It had been costly for both Jairus and the woman to come to Jesus in their need. But they came anyway. Their faith saved them. So now we go back to Jairus. Instead of proceeding straight to a happy ending in this story, word comes to him, your daughter has died. Jesus tells him, don't be afraid, only believe. On they go, until they reach the house. And when they arrive, there's the kind of hullabaloo that you'd expect in a Middle Eastern house when somebody has died. Professional mourners come in very quickly and weep and wail loudly. I've seen this when I've travelled in Egypt, um, went to a village, and it was, would have been impossible not to realise what had happened. Even um, in this day and age, professional mourners come in and make a lot of noise. And the idea of it is to make it easier for the family to grieve. For thousands of years, it's been expected that bereaved people may need to fall apart at the seams a bit, at least for a time, better out than in. And as a minister, I worry far less about bereaved people who are letting it out than when I sense that they're bottling it up and keeping the lid on it. It's in the middle of all of this that Jesus tells them that the girl is only asleep. And they laugh. In a less polite family, I suspect Jesus would have been risking getting thumped. And at times, Jesus could sound remarkably insensitive. This poor man had just heard that his daughter had died. And Jesus tells him not to be afraid, just believe. The delay has been a disaster. You can imagine the thoughts that might have gone through Jairus' mind. But 
We know enough of Jesus not to be offended. And it sounds as if Jairus took it that way too. It's as if deep down, Jesus knew that if Jesus is with you, there's no ground for fear. Trust the person, not the circumstances. Jairus had just witnessed a lonely, sick and outcast woman do exactly that. And he'd seen what happened for her. He can believe too, because Jesus has already shown his intention to heal Jairus' daughter. After all, Jesus set off for Jairus' house with him, didn't he? And then in verse 37, Jesus does something that was typical of the way he worked. Only he, Jairus, and Peter, James, and John carried on to the house. The crowd must have gone on their way. And when this small party arrived at the house, the only other person to go in with them was the girl's mother. If Jesus had wanted to, he could easily have stirred up the crowds and got everybody on his side by doing something amazing in full view of them all. Instead, what he does is put the professional mourners out of the house. He shuns the shallow approach. He's not going to encourage a following based on drama. And I think the reason for it is that he has come as the saviour of the world, not the popular hero of a mass movement. When he heals the girl, it's done quietly and privately. And then he tells those present not to tell anyone, or more accurately, he commands them again and again not to tell anyone. There's some real insistence in what Jesus says. These two stories, woven into one, raise deep questions, especially about faith. What is true faith? It clearly isn't just about following a wonder worker. Otherwise, you'd expect Jesus to be as public as possible about the miracles, attract more followers, if that's what it's all about. To answer this question about the nature of true faith, I think it's helpful to take note of a difference between the way we read this account today and the way people at the time would have read it. All too easily, we focus on the miracle itself and whether we think the story is true or not. And that tends to raise a difficulty for us which is this, if God can raise the dead, why doesn't he prevent disasters like the Holocaust or the earthquake in Haiti this week? I knew a minister's wife years ago who struggled for years with the miracles because of exactly that question. Now, I'd like to say at this point, just in case you're wondering, that I do believe that Jesus did heal this woman and raise Jairus' daughter. So put out of your mind any concerns in case you have a preacher in front of you who doesn't believe that. I do, so don't worry about that. And the reasons that I believe that it happened the way Mark is telling us is that there are bits of Aramaic 
in this dialect. And that suggests to me that the material came down from an eyewitness, possibly Peter, whom we know was there. Why were the words of Jesus to the girl not translated into Greek, the language in which the New Testament was written? Perhaps it was because these words of Jesus spoken to the girl had such resonance with those present. So much so that when they recounted what happened, they quoted Jesus as they'd heard him. And the other thing that makes me find this account so convincing is that there's so much detail in the telling of these stories. It suggests to me that they're based on eyewitness accounts. But if we give all our attention to that question, then we're in danger of missing the main point. Mark's intention is to lead his readers towards faith in the person of Christ, not in astonishing actions. Bishop Tom Wright puts it like this. Just as Jesus wasn't coming to be a one-man liberation movement in the traditional revolutionary sense, so he wasn't coming to be a one-man emergency medical center. He was indeed starting a revolution, and he was indeed bringing God's healing power but his aim went deeper. These things were signs of the real revolution, the real healing that God was to accomplish through his death and resurrection. These miracles were signs of something deeper that God was doing, pointers to his big picture. If we're not careful, we focus on the events, the raising of a dead child, the healing of a sick woman, because health is a very important issue for us, understandably so. When Mori inquire what people think are the priorities for the government, health is usually near to the top of the list. I'm not knocking health care at all. It's important, but it's not the main point of the story before us here. To understand what these events meant, we need to look at Jesus' plea for secrecy. And I think that the reason why Jesus begged his hearers not to say what they'd seen and heard that day was this. What he was doing and saying was dangerous and subversive. If Herod heard that someone with authority over death was on the loose, he would be very worried. If the religious leaders heard about it, They would try to stifle it. And Jesus hadn't yet completed the mission that he came to carry out. And Mark keeps on, through his gospel, drawing our attention to that fact that there is more to come. Jesus is on his way to confronting evil at its very heart, on the cross, to break its power. He'll meet and defeat death once and for all. And then... There will be no command to silence. Mark wants us to move towards a faith in God who is able to triumph over all that is wrong in this world. If all our attention is on people being healed or raised from the dead as one-offs, 
then we're seeking a God who is about making life safer for us. And Jesus never promised to do that for his followers. He invited them to take up their cross and follow him. So now we turn to the Old Testament reading. Job chapter 19 and verses 21 to 27. It's on page 523. Job was having the most terrible time. For reasons best known to himself, God had allowed Satan to test Job to see if Job's faith would crack when everything was taken away from him. Job was a very good man and a man of deep faith. He was blessed in his family life and he was blessed with many of this world's goods. But by chapter 19, Job's flocks and his children have perished horribly. His health has given out and his wife has urged him to curse God and die. Job refused. Now he sits on an ash heap, scraping the sores on his body with a bit of broken pottery. And Job's so-called comforters tell him he must have done something to make God angry. And in the midst of all of this, Job declares, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Even in what is probably the earliest book in the Bible, we get echoes of what was coming thousands of years later in God's plan to bring a redeemer who would bring salvation and that we shall see God. This is real faith. It's the faith that's about God himself. It's not just about getting things from him, not even good things like health care. It's the kind of faith that sticks with Jesus as he goes to the cross. It's the kind of faith that runs counter to the culture in which we live. It's faith which is focused on the big picture of God's eternal salvation. It's not got a short-term vision at all. So what do we do with this? We live in an era and in a society where people largely expect not to suffer, at least not too badly, and even see that state as their right. If they do suffer, then it must be because somebody's done something wrong, a doctor perhaps, or even God. But this sense of entitlement diminishes our capacity to cope with suffering. It stifles faith. It's rooted in the belief that this world is all there is. And its theme tune is life isn't a rehearsal. So often that is used as the justification for getting all that you can now and only doing those things that you actually enjoy. When that happens, we get stuck in our fears, 
inner resources, or perhaps I should even call them outer resources, cannot reach us to cope with adversity. Our lives need to be part of God's bigger picture. We need to have much more of a sense of his plan of salvation. And that is the real backdrop against which we live our lives. It's not the way in which people in what is often called postmodern times tend to think of life. They tend to think of life in a much smaller way without this big narrative going on in which their lives are part of that story. Jesus is compassionate towards our suffering, but his ultimate plan for us is salvation. This life is a sort of rehearsal. The transition from fear to faith is not about everything being made safe for us. It's about a radical reorientation of our sense of the purpose of our lives. This is a huge challenge. And if it's something that you're struggling with, as I think all of us do, at least at times in life, then there will be people during communion and after the service who can pray with you. So do reach out to God in that way, and he will honor your prayer for help. Those who begin to cross that bridge And let's face it, for many of us, it's a bridge that we have to keep on being willing to cross. When we do begin to cross that bridge, we grow in freedom and peace, even when life throws its worst. Amen.